Thanks. We got a big room today, so we should be a little more comfortable. And uh, but I hope everybody's able to hear and see properly. So make adjustments as you need to. Um, I am Nina Ellis. I'm an Air member. I've been a member almost since the beginning. I can't remember what year. 20 years, I think. And Air is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. Uh, as you may know, there is an opportunity to join Air here at the conference, and you get a 10% discount if you do. You get tremendous benefits. There's a fabulous website that has all kinds of information. There's a, a daily list serve, which, believe me, will become your community instantly, and you can see all kinds of information on that daily listserv. Just this past week, we had uh, threads of discussion that ran from questions about, should I get a journalist visa or a tourist visa for my traveling to India? Or questions about, um, is, is it worth getting Pro Tools 8 if I have to upgrade my operating system? So those kinds of questions and everything in between, believe me, it's worth it for the listserv because you have an instant community when you join AIR. So think about that. I'd like to introduce Sue Shart, the executive, uh, I always want to call you the executive producer of AIR, but that's a good title. <laughs> the executive director of AIR, Sue. And Aaron Mishkin is also here, I hope. Aaron is the, oh, Aaron's at a wedding. She's the membership director, so either one of them can tell you more about AIR. Um, we're here with another incredible panel today. Yesterday, for those of you who were here, I think you will agree, we all learned a lot and um, it was incredibly enlightening, I thought. And we're going to try and top that today, and I think we probably will with this group. So I'm going to let them introduce themselves from left to right. We have Lita Hartman, Peter Clowney, Celeste Wesson, and David Krasnow. Some of them have been on panels in the past. Some of them have not. But I'll let them introduce themselves. <laughs> Sorry. First, Lita Hartman. Hello. I'm Lita Hartman. I'm with the World Vision Report. Gosh, it's really... Um, unfamiliar is talking in front of a mic here. Um, my program uh, covers um, poverty and justice internationally with a focus on the developing world. We do about 80% uh, stories overseas and 20% domestic stories. Um, some examples of domestic stories that we do uh, for poverty are, for example, an African-American community in Minneapolis that didn't have a grocery store nearby. Everyone had to take a bus and walk miles with their groceries to get proper food, so they started uh, a food co-op. Another example that we have coming down Pike is um, a story about a group of homeless people in Boston who are recording a CD to raise awareness about homeless people and raise funds. And the main character that we're focusing on happened to be homeless at the same time that Michelle Schacht was homeless. So both of those characters are in the story. Just to give you examples of the kind of domestic poverty stories that we do. Um, what, what I look for in a pitch, uh, first of all, I should say that I've been on your end of the pitch process for many more years than I've been on this end of the pitch process. Um, I've been a station-based reporter, and I was, tell, true story, a radio freelancer in public radio for seven years, making a living such as it was. Um, and I've, I think, filed for all three of these shows <laughs> here, so I very much understand what it's like to go through the pitch process, no nervousness necessary at all. Um, so what I look for in pitches are not only um, the ideas. First of all, the idea has to suit the show. Our show's about poverty and justice, so 
um, you wouldn't, you know, sell us like a light cultural piece. You'd want to have a, a story that has some element of poverty and justice in it. The same way you wouldn't like sell Twinkies to a junk food junkie, to a, you know, health food nut. You'd have to kind of know, make the product fit the show. Um, and so in addition to whether the idea fits the mission of the show, I would also look for strong characters in your piece, a compelling story arc. Is there a beginning, a middle, and an end that people can follow? Are there gnat sound and scenes in your story? Um, and, not, and beyond all that, how do you present your pitch? That's um, crucial to me in terms of figuring out the way you think as a reporter. Um, is it clearly presented? Is it elegantly written? Does it have pizzazz to it? Is there something quirky and unique about it? All of those things are eye-openers and all of those things are pluses. So it's not just what your idea is, but the way you present it that is, is telling and, and that's uh, valuable for me to know. My job is, as assignment editor at the World Vision Report, my job is not only to take in pitches, um, and give initial feedback to reporters, but also to be a liaison with reporters around the world. So it's a challenge to find very experienced, competent, you know, high-quality uh, radio reporters in Sierra Leone where the power goes out every 10 minutes, but it can be done, and that is the way we operate. <laughs> um, we work with reporters who are primarily freelancers um, all around the globe, um, Americans, Brits, Canadians, uh, Australians and also local journalists from places in Africa, Latin America, Asia, and so on. Um, so that's about it. Um, uh, and if you have any questions, I did bring some material about the program um, that you can see me afterwards and, and I can set you up. That's about it. Peter Clowney. All right. Hello, everyone. Could I just have a show of hands? People who've been working in public radio uh, for under, for fewer than five years, for all right, this is awesome. So, and can I see a show of hands of people who've been doing this for more than 10 years? Okay, so the first group, talk to the second group, because they're gonna tell you in greater detail what it's like specifically to work with us and, <laughs> and to get stuff onto stories. I mean, the people who've been doing this for a long time um, have so much wisdom and they're here. And the people who are new to it have so many great questions. So you guys have to talk to each other. That's my first thought. The second one is, um, all right, so my program is called Weekend America. We uh, try to be the show that's about what's happening this Saturday and Sunday in America. Uh, we want to do stories that are memorable, that are eye-opening, that have a sense of place from where they're coming from, and that uh, are treated in some inventive style, in some way that people will say, oh, wow, I've never heard a story like that before, as often as we can. When I get a story pitch, what I'm looking for is that you know who's doing what, for what reason? <laughs> and that's actually can be hard to answer. And I also want to know why the audience is going to love hearing that story. Um, and I'm amazed at how frequently those simple things get forgotten. Um, you, won't, you won't always have all the answers to those things, um, but I want you to have thought a lot about it. And then we'll, ha we'll have that conversation. Um, and if you're not sure, I'll ask, like, okay, well, what drew you to this? What is it that, that makes you invested? Why are you in love with this? Um, I think it, to that point that that arc, I want to hear about an arc, but I also know that arc can change. You know, when you get out there and start reporting, you're going to discover things. This, that's what, it's why we report. <laughs> so the story should include um, that, that journey that you've had. Uh, I guess 
to give you a sense of the range of stories that we do, so my show goes on the air about half an hour after this panel finishes, so I'm going to run to my phone right after this. Um, but you know, we're, we cover the news of today as well as stories that are, uh, that are of today that are just more personal. So um, today, President Bush is meeting with finance ministers from all around the world to try to figure out what a global kind of coordinated banking approach to this financial meltdown could be. We're going to go live and talk about, okay, what exactly is happening? What could it be? This is unprecedented. So that's, that's a very newsy thing. But we're also talking to a guy whose job is to fly in air shows on the weekends, and he's got a show today. And, you know, it's about, like, what it's like being up in that cockpit sort of as routine, but also the sort of love that he has of being there. So there's, there's a whole range, but it's all, it's all about what's, what's dynamic today. Um, that's because in weekend programming, so much is in the can and unchanging and not responsive to that day. We want to be different. Celeste Wesson is here from Marketplace, just flew in last night, actually early this morning. Gee, that story sounded very familiar that you were talking about, Peter, yes. about the global coordinated <laughs> uh, banking approach. Fortunately, we can, we can, we can uh, worry about that all weekend. Exactly. Uh, before we'll keep uh, people anxious for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Marketplace is actually three programs. I'm the senior producer of the uh, PM show called Marketplace. Um, and uh, there's also Marketplace Morning Report, which is uh, updated seven times during the morning. It's about seven minutes long. Um, and both of those programs are very news focused. Certainly at least most of the shows are news focused. And when there's a lot of economic news, needless to say, they're very news focused. Um, but they also run features. Marketplace Money is a weekend personal finance show. Um, and they're united, I think, by their, their tone and their subject matter, but the pieces are, each piece is just, a, the facets of the piece are a little bit different. Um, when people pitch, we are, all three programs, all the editors and the show producers meet once a week to look at pitches that are compiled onto a list. And you may think of your pitch as a marketplace money pitch or a PM pitch or a morning pitch, but sometimes the show you pitch to may not be the one that chooses it. And so that's one of the things that you should be prepared for if your story is accepted at Marketplace is that it may get twisted a little bit uh, just because it's for a different program. It may be shorter um, that, than you think it ought to be. In fact, it most likely will be. The features on Marketplace Morning Report are two minutes long. Our average length feature is three minutes. And Marketplace Money is a little bit longer. Did you just say R from Marketplace in the evening? Is that what you just called it? What? Do you feel like you, uh, that all the shows uh, share pieces? Uh, you guys share your, um, your editorial agenda, though? I mean, even though the treatments are a little bit different, you're all... I, I, the, the, I mean, I think the simplest way, way to say what our editorial agenda is is that it's business news for the rest of us. It's right. one of our little slogans. And so it's... It, all the stories are about money, business, finance, economics, in some way. I mean, there there's, needs to be a marketplace angle to it, but it is told in a way that is accessible uh, and hopefully even fun. That is, if you're going to serve spinach, you know, you want to put a little salt and pepper on it or something uh, because you don't want to make it painful for people. Uh, well, to you, try you, to understand what it is that you're talking about. Just, it's, well, I used to work for Celeste, and one of the beautiful things she used to tell me about the show is it's life through the lens of money. And that's really, that's the best way to talk about Marketplace, and that's part of why we love the show so much. So. 
Thank you, Peter. Peter always just sums it up very well. I hope nicely. to work for her again. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you may have to after that. <laughs> um, I, gee, I think those are the main things I wanted to say, except that there are two marketplace editors here at the conference, John Haas and Betsy Streisand. And we're all going to be at the air table after the session for a little while. But you should also, if you're interested in following for Marketplace, seek out the editors as well as um, me, because they're the ones who actually work with the reporters. Uh, sort of the Marketplace metaphor for what the show producers do at that pitch meeting. We're, you know, so, like if I'm not there, somebody might say, who's shopping for PM? You know, who's buying stories? Um, you know, so I see the pitches and I decide which ones are right in the mix of what we've done. And just very, very quickly, I think that sometimes really good pitches don't get taken. Right now, people, we're getting pitches, we're, we're so focused on the financial crisis that there are good, softer features we might normally say yes to that I, I just don't know when I'm going to be able to run them. Um, sometimes people pitch great stories, but we've already done something similar. Um, so. You know, we try to at least telegraph, well, we already did something kind of too similar, but there are really good stories out there that we don't have room to tell because our, our, we're, we're, our longest show is half an hour long. And uh, fourth is David Krasnow with his homemade sign there. This is the most humiliating day of my life. <laughs> <laughs> um, can I have my sign back? I'll restore Peter to his rightful position. Um, so I used to work for Peter, and Peter used to work for Celeste, so it's a little bit of an insular group here. Um, I'm the senior editor of Studio 360, um, nationally distributed program produced by PRI and WNYC out of New York. Um, it's sometimes thought of as a little bit of a New York show, and we try to fight that at every turn. Um, we know a lot of people in New York, and we are all in New York, so it does, New York has a certain gravity. Um, but for those of you who are in other places and saying, oh, but we don't have exciting you know, culture stories in town X, you're totally wrong. And you probably know people right now. <laughs> okay, well, well but, I hear that, anyway. but I hear that quite a bit. And in Baltimore, I know because we've worked with Aaron Henkin, who is like every week I look at the rundown of his program and say, damn, I should move there. That's a fine show. Um, but a lot of, I do hear that from a lot of people, and it's really wrong. Um, I'm going to steal from Peter and Celeste now that uh, if Marketplace is life through the lens of money, Studio 360 is kind of life through the lens of culture. Um, it is like a traditional arts program, or it incorporates the elements of a traditional arts program, but it also has a somewhat broader mandate to look at creativity in other walks of life. We've been looking for the last few years at creativity in the sciences um, and in other kinds of related uh, fields of discipline. Uh, we also do a lot with amateur art and with listeners who maybe are not even particularly practicing art but have had experiences with the arts that have been powerful and life-changing to them. That's a really important focus for us. Um, about 10 to 20 minutes of our hour every week is contributed by freelance producers. Um, we have also two to three host-driven interviews or commentary type pieces in every show. Um, so we may have an interview with an extremely famous you know, creator of films or whatever. We had um, Spike Lee last week. Um, but we also do stories about people that we've never heard of. We had a story from a guy who contacted us. He had no experience in radio and just sent us a pitch about a guy he knew, he had moved to Syria, and he had met a guy who was a refugee there from Iraq, who was, as he described it, a blues musician, obsessed with American blues from childhood. This guy loved, loved, loved American blues. Um, and he wanted to be in America. This was his great dream. And um, when the war started, somehow believed that as a great friend of America, he might be able to get here. Um, 
it is an incredibly sad story, an incredibly powerful story. When I heard the recordings of this guy, I had a little bit of a gulp because, um, well, he's a terrible musician. And his singing, you know, his, I mean, he's singing his, his native language is Arabic, so his English is crazy and also weirdly out of key. And, uh, you know, and I, I know Peter Clowney plays guitar much better than this guy. And, um, it's not saying much. But it was a wonderful, wonderful story. And for us, the fact of looking at his experience and his passion and devotion to music um, and his life story based on music was much more important than whether or not he was ever going to play, you know, Carnegie Hall or even, you know, Fred's Tavern. Um, that's some of the stuff that we cover. Um, what did I want to say? Um, like Peter, one of the things that I want to look for in a pitch is the sense of why the story is important to you and not just that the story exists and it's you know, in a locale that you can get to conveniently, but what you have at stake in it. Um, which doesn't mean that we want all of our reporting to be in the first person, but I really want to know that there's something about the story that really compels you and that's important to you. Um, arts coverage, unlike financial coverage and maybe unlike poverty coverage and most news coverage, um, we don't need to cover the arts, strictly speaking. No one really needs to listen to it. Um, and the reason that we do it is because most people find it really fascinating and care about it, and it is a part of life that enriches our experience. Um, so in our pitches, we don't necessarily need to inform people of specific things that are going on, especially as a national arts show. A lot of art is <coughs> local by nature. Theater is local by nature, or music performance is often local by nature. Um, in a national context, what we're looking for is a really deep and powerful connection to the creative impulse. Great. Thanks, all of you. Now we're we're gonna we're gonna move this along real quickly because we have eight we people. <laughs> Thank you. We have eight people who are gonna pitch today. Here's how it's gonna work: um, When you're pitching, you come up to this end, this far end of the table, and sit at the in the chair there. The panelist will move down to the end, so you're sitting next to each other. I'll start the clock. You have. I'm gonna cut it down to nine minutes today. We did. Can we do less than that? Let's do eight. Let's do eight minutes. Um, we, we got through most of them yesterday in less than that, so we should be able to be fine. Otherwise, we're, we're going to get kicked out of the room. So let's go to the first. Uh, Lita Hartman is our first panelist. And our first pitcher is Emily Eagle. Emily is a SALT student right now. She made a few radio projects. Before she went to SALT, she has less than five years' experience. She studied abroad in Nepal in 2004, and uh, part of that experience uh, has informed a lot of her work at SALT since. So, Emily and Lita, go. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so, I'm going to sort of set a scene and then um, go from there. So, imagine that you're, um, you're in a, a Nepali restaurant, and it's about 10.30 p.m. on Saturday night and you hear some traditional Nepali music on some not-so-perfect speakers, the sound of bottles moving around. Um, you're with some friends, um, some Nepali friends, who are sort of describing what's going on. And in particular, they're telling you about the dancers. There's these women in sort of traditional dress, kind of um, reminiscent of what traditional dress used to be. Um, but the clothes are a little bit more fitted, it's a little bit provocative, um, but it's still it still has this sense that it's like very like, this is our heritage, um, this is our kind of story. And uh, so this, this young man is telling you about what's going on, these women dancing, singing also. Um, and you're having, you're having fun, the party's just getting started. And then all of a sudden, it's 11 p.m. 
the music, somebody pulls the plug, the music's gone. The bottle sounds are there for a couple seconds, and then they're gone. And all of a sudden, you notice that the police are in the restaurant, um, and the restaurant's being busted in because there's been a law put into place um, in the last um, about month that um, late night restaurants in Nepal are no longer um, allowed to be open after 11 p.m. And it's been put in place by the new Maoist leadership in order, in order to curb prostitution and crime. Um, and so that's sort of the scene. And then the idea being that um, though this is meant to protect families and to stop crime, some control like this um, in turn backfires. So we start with this Nepali man who's telling the story and then um, switch to talking to people about why the Maoist leadership put this into place. So ordinary families who, which is sort of the idea that the Maoist leadership wants to protect is these families. Um, and sort of talking about if, if Nepali men are in these bars, are they home with their wives? Are they home with their children? Um, so talking to, to families about that um, and um, focusing on that, and it could be like a Vox Pop style, like talking to a few different families or just one particularly articulate family. And then moving into the next thing, which is sort of the guts of the story, that a lot of these um, restaurants employed many, many people, and they're out of work now because the profit's been cut, um, and there's been daily protests. And so sort of talking to these, um, in particular, women who've worked in these restaurants about um, what they've lost um, because the restaurants are being closed on a regular basis. So, um, and sort of how um, it's possible that they will be pushed closer to more crime and possibly prostitution. Um, you sort of get the sense that some of the clubs are sort of fronts for prostitution, but they are still, some of the women who work in the front are just on that level, just sort of the, the look, don't touch kind of thing. But if the restaurant is curbed completely, they might be out of work and pushed into the street. So those are the sort of three acts that I want to um, touch on, and then sort of the idea that when you control something, it can backfire. This is my pitch. Okay, very interesting, a lot of edge in there. Good job. <laughs> okay, now, first question is, if I were going to distill this into one overarching idea related to poverty and justice, what would that be? How would you sort of encapsulate it? Okay. Um, uh, trying to protect families, often families through, um, or trying to, trying to curb a subculture that's maybe not so um, uh, healthy, may in turn backfire and hurt, hurt many of the people that you're trying to help. Okay, so what we want is a character or a, fa a set of characters that we really care about. So why, what would I um, feel for, for the characters that could be affected by this change in the prostitution or the, the restaurant laws. Um, what's the takeaway there? Who would be affected? Who would be hurt? Where's the justice element? Okay, so I, I think um, I would try to focus in particular on some of the women who are the dancers um, who no longer have this avenue to show off a skill. It's a really big deal to be a good dancer um, in Nepal and especially a good singer at the same time. And if there's not a place or not a lot of places where you can um, sort of show off that skill um, and you don't have a husband to support you, um, then you sort of push to the side. All of these women do have, um, 
do have families and maybe their husbands were killed in the war or um, their husbands are drunks. Um, in particular, I wanna focus on the women who, are, um, who have been in this situation. Are these women what we would call poor? Yeah. Okay, and how would you describe that? Um, I would probably try to go get some tape of at their house, sort of talking about mm -hmm. what they cook when they're mm -hmm. not at work, mm -hmm. um, what the things that they worry about are in terms of how do they get um, their day-to-day -day needs taken care of, um, maybe even go, go to the market with them and see what they mm -hmm. can buy with the money that they make, mm -hmm. and especially if they are out of work, sort of ask them how much they have saved, how much, how much longer they can go um, without trying to find something else, and then asking them sort of more directly, what do they think their future will be like? Okay, and also, are these women just exotic dancers? Are they prostitutes? Does it cross the line? It's, we want some uh, clarification. Yeah, there. I think the thing is that I would probably have to have a couple different characters, because it's pretty nuanced um, in the sense that I mm -hmm. think some women mm -hmm. have drawn the line and said, no, I, I'm not an exotic dancer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm actually just going to dance in dr traditional clothing. Mm -hmm. Then there's some women who, who do exotic dancing, and then there's some women who has sort of gone the whole range and are sex workers. Okay, and, and from this change in the restaurant laws that everything shuts down at 11, would all three types of women be affected or hurt by this? Would they become more poor potentially because of this? Yeah, I think that all three would. That's your takeaway. That's what you want to sort of bring front and center because there's a lot going on here, a lot of threads, a lot of scenes, a lot of different nuances. What we want to care about is that whether a woman is just, you know, a traditional dancer or an exotic dancer or a sex worker, she's a single woman, she's struggling, she's poor, she's trying to feed her family, and this is going to cut into her income. That is the poverty and justice angle in there. That's what you want to bring front and center for this particular show. Okay. The other thing is that um, usually our features run four to six minutes long. Sometimes we'll run something over six minutes, but it's rare. Mm -hmm. So you need to think, how am I going to focus this? How am I going to get three characters that I want people to care about in five minutes? That will not be easy. So what you might want to consider doing in the pitch, and of course we could work with this as we develop the story. 60 seconds. Thank you. Um, would be either to pick one of those characters that really you care about the most or has the most compelling personal story and mention the other situations or, um, well that would probably be what I would recommend because you, we, you, it's a very good technique to get at the, to use the micro personal story and get in there, get low to the ground, get intimate to look at the macro issue. So that's probably what I would recommend and probably ask you to rework the pitch a little bit along those lines. Okay. It's very interesting. Great. Nice Great job, job Emily. Thank you. Uh, pitching next is Amy Fry. Is Amy here? Oh, here she is. Hi, Amy. Amy Fry is uh, from Chicago. She's an independent producer. Come around this way. Yeah. Um, her radio experience, she has done some soundscape recordings, audio collage, some interviews and uh, shows about musicians on her own podcast. Amy, meet Lita. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Nice to meet you. Um, my uh, story is about a small town in um, Honduras, um, which started a recycling program. It's a small town of about 212 families. And um, they've been trying to start this program since the 90s. There's a man that worked at a high school and decided he wanted to do something about the uh, waste problem in this little town. And um, 
it was kind of on, a, it was moving very slowly ahead. And um, they ran into a volunteer worker who um, helped get the program going a little bit more. Um, so uh, there's about 90% of Honduras that um, has no waste management and there's almost 99% I believe that has no recycling program whatsoever. And uh, what the uh, project's aims are is to um, create a prototype for all of Honduras through this little tiny town. Um, I plan to uh, focus on a couple stories of uh, women that uh, actually um, were employed by the project. Um, they went from being, well, they're still single mothers. <laughs> There's one particular uh, single mother that I wanted to focus on that was selling things for like a cent in um, the middle of the square. And then now she's employed by this project to sort through waste and, um, and she's actually getting paid and feeding her family from this. So that's the basic idea. <laughs> very, very nice. And that is on mission for the show. Very, very good, um, upbeat story. So, um, the one thing I would say about this pitch, very good, interesting, worthwhile idea, where's the pizzazz in it? That's what you want from this particular idea because um, there's a lot of good being done out there in the world and even though our show uh, focuses on poverty and justice, it's not all doom and gloom. We look for the really upbeat right. stuff. And, and the way that you can draw that out is not only in the way you would present the pitch in your writing, but in terms of characters. I would want to hear more details about the aid worker who came up with this recycling program that could be um, set a precedent for the whole rest of the country, so that's micro to macro. Um, I would want to hear about this single mother. I'd want to hear real details about her life so that, you know, I'm interested in what happens to her. I care about her. And the other character I would want in this story, pitch, would be the town. I want to know what it smells like. What does that garbage smell like? What are the vibes like in the town? And the way you would flesh that out. You know, it's hard to do all this stuff, provide all this information before you actually get there and report the story. And of course, when you report it, it changes. We all know that. But if you have enough of a sense of that, um, because I would want to hear not about just the, the characters and the people affected, but the, it's going to bring up the town. So I want to care about the town, too. So the town would be a character. Um, so maybe just along those lines, could you tell me any more details about any of these three characters, the town, the single mom, the aid worker? That's my intention <laughs> when I go there, <laughs> right. Um, right. is to meet all these people that I've been told about and read about and um, through this aid worker that I'm, mm. I know the aid worker. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, all I know is that, yeah, I have to meet them. So that's my, my goal is to go down there and meet them and and talk to everyone and, and get a sense of how the town feels about this project and, and you know, so. Okay, and there's something you can't do till you report. You can't give me all those details, but there's something you can tell me you're going to find out before you report. You're, you can find out what motivates this guy. This is not easy work that he's doing. Mm -hmm. What motivates him? Where do you get the idea? I do, I mean, the idea that he, he said that he went down there to do something else, a water project, actually, between El Salvador and um, Honduras, but found that this little town that he was staying in, there was a little girl that was working on a 
garbage truck who dropped out of like third grade because she wasn't failing or something. And then so he, you know, she was working on a garbage truck, no uniform, picking up stuff with her hands to sell, you know, just very bad. <laughs> so he said he couldn't stand seeing that and um, wanted to do something to change it. So he got involved trying to raise money and that's and that's great because see how that personal detail I'm hooked oh, right. little girl not in school sorting through garbage right. with her bare hands that's really good see now those personal details are what really you could bring forth in the pitch and even if you don't have all of them mm -hmm. just like the what you do have make the most of what you do have and it's it's those personal details that really make make us interested and want to hear more mm -hmm. so I would say um, I would say nice job I, I would say it sounds like a promising pitch um, and the only other thought I would have is that in order to bring out the character of the town, you're going to want to look out for details mm -hmm. when you get there as a reporter, mm -hmm. assuming we took the pitch. I would mm -hmm. say visuals, you know, mm -hmm. use all your senses. What does it smell like? What does it look like? Uh, what does it sound like, obviously? Right. And all well, of that. When I started writing the proposal for this, I started writing about Honduras because I've been there before, but yeah. I, I couldn't, I couldn't bring out the amount of detail that I really wanted to because I'm not there. Well, so. na and naturally. <laughs> Very good for not having been there. <laughs> yeah, nice job. Yeah. Thank you, Amy. Thank you. Thanks a yeah. lot. Thank you. Thank you, Lita Hartman. We're going to hold questions for afterwards because we really urgently want to move forward with the pitches. Our next uh, panelist will be David Krasnow, and pitching to him will be Josie Holtzman. <laughs> Uh, Josie is also a SALT student. Uh, we had many pitches from SALT students, so you should be proud of yourself, SALT students. Uh, Josie graduated from college in 2006, and the pitch she's um, going to be giving to David today grew out of a thesis that she wrote about jazz communities in New York. So um, Josie is, has never made a piece before, and this is her very first pitch. So. Thank you, Josie. Thanks for offering to do it. Okay, so this is a story about um, an extraordinary person in changing times. This person is Marjorie Elliott, and she has hosted um, live free jazz concerts in the living room of her small Harlem apartment um, in the Sugar Hill part of Harlem for the past 15 years. She started doing it um, because uh, her son Philip died, and um, she got, wanted to do it in his memory, and where most people would kind of shut down, close their do doors, she opened up her heart and her home to people, to friends and strangers alike. Um, she continued through the death of her second son, Michael, 11 years later, and um, never missing a Sunday, never missing a Sunday after that. Um, and I was actually there the day after Michael passed away. It was my one and only time that I went to uh, this series called Parlor Entertainment. So I just wanted to set that scene for you. Um, so it's at 555 Edgecombe Avenue, it's 160th and Edgecombe, and you walk into um, the lobby, this beautiful lobby. Um, it's you know, a mosaic ceiling, but tiles are kind of chipping away. It's, it's kind of a regal building, but um, is obviously in disrepair. You um, buzz the, or ring the doorbell for apartment 3F, and no one answers, but you're immediately buzzed up and you ride the elevator up and turn the corner and not quite sure where to go and then you hear the sound of music and you just follow the music and the door is 
propped open, walk inside, and there are people sitting on folding chairs lined up against, just packed into this tiny living room and a small jazz ensemble playing in the back of the room. Um, and at set break, Marjorie comes up to the front of the room and um, confides in us that her, her son had passed away the night before and um, addresses all of us as her family. And that's why she's telling us this. And um, I, was, I was just profoundly moved by that. But um, this story, has, it's been covered. Um, it's been written about in the New York Times. There's been a small NPR piece on it. But what hasn't been covered, in my opinion, is what's, what's going to happen to this tradition. Marjorie's getting older. Um, I feel like she's, she's kind of lived through this, this kind of artistic defiance of death, through the death of her first son, the second son. But, um, you know, what about what happens when Marjorie passes on? Who's going to carry on this tradition? And um, especially in the, the changing context of Harlem, people are saying that Harlem is one of the final real estate frontiers of Manhattan. And it is rapidly changing. And I just see Marjorie and um, this tradition um, kind of synonymous with the African-American uh, like musical traditions that defined Harlem um, in the Harlem Renaissance. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to talk to her and um, see how she feels about this change, see if, if she feels like this tradition can continue on and get her opinion about um, the changing landscape of Harlem. Okay, nicely done. Um, how small is the apartment? Um, it's not a studio. I, I didn't get like a tour around, but um, it's about 50 or 60 people can fit in there, but really packed in, mm -hmm. like sitting in the kitchen as well as the living And who room. goes? I mean, are they people that she knows who have been going for years and years? Is it, is it, are there a lot of like German and Japanese tourists coming out of buses? So who's, who's there? There are a few tourists. Uh -huh. um, I think just there are tourists coming into Harlem. You know, it's like the tour bus parked outside of Sylvia's soul food, soul food restaurant. Yeah. Um, and then there are her close friends. I mean, when I went there, um, it, I, I, was afraid I was going to feel really out of place, but um, it's kind of it's kind of unclear who she knows and who she doesn't know because it's just this really inclusive community. So, mm -hmm. and how did she start doing this? Tell me about um, Philip. Um, I all I know is that he he passed away. He had a a, a kidney infection, I think, and he was a musician, um, a jazz player. Yes. Mm -hmm. And um, her second son, Michael, was a musician as well, but I don't know details about mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit, there's, there's sort of two things in play here, and one is a portrait story about Marjorie, and the other is a kind of trend changing times mm -hmm. thing. T tell me about the context in which her effort is taking place and, and what's going on in Harlem right now. Um, well, I guess just the gentrification that's happening, even though the economy is not doing well, I mean, they're just, you know, um, well, I guess first of all, Columbia is just bought up. Um, I don't know how much. A lot of uh, area in West Harlem. Uh, she's in East Harlem, but it's just it's pushing that way. There was um, a, a big uh, building in Sugar Hill that just went co-op. So there's just a lot of those types. Of, you know, like Starbucks opening on 125th Street, which is kind of the main Harlem thoroughfare, and. Um, and, and I mean, it's, it's tricky, though, because it's the mixed blessing of gentrification. A lot of people are saying, well, this is the new renaissance, and this is going to revive, um, you know, that, 
that African-American culture that wants to find it, you know, reopening the Lenox Lounge and Mittens and all these old jazz clubs. Um, but then rent goes up and brownstones are selling for a million dollars. And what about the original residents? What are they going to do? So it's kind of looking at that, too. And, and I feel like I'm a little bit ambivalent. I think a lot of people are ambivalent about um, gentrification and what it means. Mm -hmm. So is this, I mean, do you see this as a portrait piece or as kind of a trend story? I see it as both. Mm -hmm. That's a Did tough that place to come down. Okay. You know, I mean, okay. we, we sort of, we always want everything for our stories and it's, it is hard to pack both and feel like you have a concise piece in there. Okay. Um, the, the version of your pitch that I saw, um, you also talked about some of the texture of what goes on there and, and what like, is there food there? Are there drinks there? Like, tell me about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, when I was there, I walked in and there was um, this woman that was nursing her baby under this kind of like canopy of blue fabric and um, granola, chocolate chip granola bars that were being circulated around on this kind of silver tray that, um, you know, and then there was juice in the kitchen and um, like a small little Christmas tree in the back of the room. It's a private home. She could serve drinks. Right? Yeah, yeah. But, but chooses not to. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's Sunday at four, so. <clears throat> right. Um, <laughs> Like you said. <laughs> like I said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bloody Mary, a little something. Okay. Um, so there's a couple things um, that I'm thinking about. One, the fact that it has been covered uh, through NPR um, for a program like mine is going to be a little bit prohibitive. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, we would really have to be bringing a very, very different, completely distinct angle to it. Mm -hmm. um, how long ago was it covered there? Um, I think it was... 2005. Okay, so a little while ago, but not not ages and mm -hmm. ages ago. Mm -hmm. I would need to listen to that story, mm -hmm. and um, and feel like, you know, if I could see something else to do with it that they really didn't hit. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, we you know we do the same stories on NPR in completely different ways, and I'm totally satisfied, and mm -hmm. I don't think we're jipping listeners. Mm -hmm. If if there's one story and they did it beautifully, then I'm not sure that I could really assign it out. Mm -hmm. um, I would want to know a little bit more about her motivations about Philip mm -hmm. in this. Um, and I would really want to figure out sort of where exactly we fall on the trend. I mean, is she a tradition or is she her own completely? Does anyone else do this? Like, is there a tradition of jazz in apartments in Harlem right now? Or is this a Excuse singular me. activity that she's seconds. done? Okay. Um, not right now, no. I, I, I've heard that rent parties are kind of coming back amongst folk musicians, mm -hmm. um, but I think she's kind of she's kind of one of a kind. Okay, yeah. I will say it's really hard to do a portrait piece like this and capture um, an apartment building. Mm -hmm. It's um, it is it's harder than it sounds. Mm -hmm. You wrote about the fact that Duke Ellington lived there, which you know completely, you know, sort of perked my ears up mm -hmm. a little bit. Um, but it's also hard to sort of capture that sense. Mm -hmm. I might ask um, to listen to an interview with Marjorie. Mm -hmm. I might suggest that if this is a story you really love and think you can do, and, and we think that there's room apart from what NPR has already covered, mm -hmm. I might ask for tape from her okay. and see what she's like and see what she can tell you that, um, that would bring something distinctive to it at this point when she's sort of near the, the end of a trajectory and Harlem, is, mm -hmm. Harlem was in a really different place in 1992. And so maybe that is how it's framed of her keeping, you know, trying to keep jazz alive in Harlem in 92 when the neighborhood was dying and now trying to keep it alive in mm -hmm. 2008 when the neighborhood is booming. Back up, yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank All right. you. Well Thanks done. a lot. Thank you, Josie. Thank you. That was Josie's first story, her first pitch. Let's give her a big support. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, our next picture is Sue Mel.
M-E-L-L, Sue Mel. Here she comes. Sue's from the Bay Area. Uh, she's been producing radio for about five years, and in a previous life, she worked as an illustrator. Um, she has done one story for Studio 360 in the past. Sue Mel. Hi. Hey, David. The first thing I'm going to say is I want the visuals put away. Oh, really? Put away the visuals. Oh, okay. Oh, extra bonus fun. No right. visuals. No visuals. Okay. People are always like, go to this website and look at the work. That nothing gets my goat more than go to the website and look at this. Because my listener is not going to the website. Okay. Until they've heard your story right. and find it fascinating. Okay? You have to totally fascinate them. Then they might go to the website. Never tell me to go to the website. If you can't do a fantastic job with the visuals on your own, on the phone to me, or in your pitch, don't pitch. Okay, interesting. All right. I can still see it. No, I'm only kidding. It's okay. It's okay. It's fine. It's fine. It's no fine. No wonder they call it humorous for the panel. I thought it would be funny. This is not entertainment, Sue. Okay. <laughs> Don't anybody pitch to Studio 360. <laughs> He's a very scary man. No. <laughs> for the past few years, I've been collecting security envelopes. Not in any ambitious sort of way, but steadily, nonetheless. White envelopes with glassine windows and patterns inside, enclosing envelopes and a never-ending stream of credit card offers. My favorite's like a cross between an M.C. Escher drawing and a Mayan shield. I thought I'd make a collage, like a paper quilt. They seem too whimsical and charming to throw away. Working myself as an illustrator for seven years, I'd created images for commercial products myself, holiday napkins and paper plates, even a set of women's underwear for Joe Boxer, where the designs on each pair of panties represented a different country. But these were meant to be decorative items. Who was coming up with these intricate and subtle designs for the insides of envelopes? Why not simply make them all opaque? As my pile of unopened envelopes began to overwhelm a corner of my desk, I thought I'd find out. Part personal essay, part documentary, I envision a three to five minute piece where the ephemeral nature of the design, design in the world around us is a metaphor for the ephemeral quality of our lives. I expect to gather tape from envelope manufacturers and suppliers, hopefully a person who actually does these designs or someone who chooses them. And tracking these people down would be part of my sort of miniature quest. I would also include sounds of my opening the envelopes and describing a few of my favorites and their appeal, along with written narrative about this tiny decorative detail and the peculiar way in which I'm unable to let it go. Okay. Well done. Envelopes, now, envelopes are extremely sound. All right, show the underwear. Oh, I mean, don't you want to see the underwear? It's cute. Panties. Designed by Sue Mel. Does anyone need underwear designed? She's freelance, available for work. Okay. Um, all right, so we've done, we've done one piece together, and it was something that you brought with a pitch that also I didn't quite get at first, and we talked about it a lot. You know, and even as you were putting it together, we talked about how to shape your story. Right. Um, so you're starting from a place that I really like, which is that you have a strange obsession, which I think is a great thing in a radio story. And as I said, like, you know, if you, if you don't care to start out with, no one else will care. Um, you know, you might need a therapist rather than an editor, because what's, <laughs> what, how did you become so obsessed with, with the designs of security envelopes? Just because, I mean, they're, they're kind of like oddly beautiful. And I mean, they could just be, you know, a crosshatch or a grid. Obviously, it's just meant to disguise the print that's below it. But, but some of them are sort of in these pastel shades of gray or these very intricate patterns where you don't even see the whole pattern unless you actually tear open and unfold this envelope. And I was just kind of fascinated. I mean, it's this whole idea of ephemera. It's made to be thrown away. 
but some of them are actually a beautiful thing. And I'd be sort of, here's my like shredder over here and there's the corner of my desk and I'd head towards the shredder and I'd be like, oh, well, I'll just keep this one. <laughs> and then now there's like a stack of like 85 of these. Uh, yeah. um, um, so you've noticed something about the world that I had never stopped to look at and I find mm. that really interesting. Um, we have on Studio 360 a series called Design, design for, for the, the Real, Real World, world. Um, yeah. which is a series of generally three to four minute pieces about the design of everyday objects from gigantic parking garages to things the size of a security envelope or smaller. Um, so it sort of fits nicely within there. Um, the main things I would ask is you've put out a bunch of rhetorical questions, mm. which for something like this, you know, a, a story like this that's about design, like lives or dies on the power of the people who are talking about it. Mm -hmm. um, and to make this pitch land, I would need to really know who those people are. I would okay. need to see some of the reporting to find out who you're going to talk to and if they can talk and if they can tell you something fascinating because the worst thing would be that you're then casting around for two months looking for a designer of security envelopes right, right. and you find like you know two people with you know like social disorders or something who are like sitting away you know like are completely insane and can't really talk to you and then you've spent two months looking for subjects and right. then you know and then you're frustrated and I pay you a kill fee and it's a bummer um, so we would want to see that on the front end to make sure that you can really um, I would want to know about scene also in the story, you've got, I mean, just the basic sound of an envelope is really nice, and you could probably get a nice three-minute piece that is just using natural sound of you handling these things. Um, but I would want some sense, if you're going to go out and meet people, I would want to know what scenes happen there. Okay. Um, is there any other question I had about that? You, if you guys have already done a, a version of this, what, did you do the chronological story about getting obsessed and then moving on and making underwear about it and stuff like that, or not yet? Wait, no, I haven't done a version of this. you've already worked on a story. On no, a different, oh, a different, completely different story. Completely different story. You're obsession with boxing gloves or something. Yeah. But like, so you, you haven't done the, you haven't done it. Okay, no, no. I haven't done it, no. The story, the suit. No, I just meant like. He wants the underwear. I'm hearing, I'm hearing the idea, I'm hearing the idea frame and I was wondering if you, you'd already done the sort of chronological frame, but it sounds like you haven't, like how you got into it. Or no, an utterly okay. different yeah. no. story. And that's, and that, I mean, in putting a story together, that's, we want both of those things in there, but that's a little bit of a tough thing to manage. There is your personal obsession, and then there's also you as a, as a, in a reporter narrator role. Those can sometimes be a little bit hard to manage. You know, if, if you start feeling like you are the authority source in your piece, because you've been looking at these things more than anyone out there. Right. Um, you can just get into weird little little quirks about that. You may be able to pull it off. I mean, you have a lot of experience. You're an illustrator. You might be a sort of commentator on these things, right. and then and then going out to designers and talking to them about their work, or you might function more as a traditional reporter. I mean, I did imagine more the core of the piece as a personal piece, kind of about my obsession with this detail of design in the world, and then enriching that with an actual like tiny bit of history or because that's kind of the way the segments mm -hmm. usually go there's a little bit of history or or a conversation with a designer or I would love for you to meet someone who is even more strangely obsessed with the strange object than you <laughs> okay <laughs> you know, like if there is a collector out there who is actually completely fanatical and has like 90,000 of them and you know I like, can't move through his or her apartment anymore you know like that's sort of the that's sort of the level I would want you to take it okay. to um, but I like that you are starting from that sense of engagement with us and I like that there's a sense of surprise on it. Okay. It probably could never be more than a four-minute piece. Right, no, you know, no. Sort of three to four minutes. Three to five, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I wasn't trying to crack a joke. <laughs> the website. Um, the underwear website. Right. Okay. Thank you. Okay, yeah. great. Thank you. Thank you, David Crosnow. Our next panelist is Celeste Wesson from Marketplace. And 
Her first picture is Ari Zeiger. Do I have that right? Yes. Ari, I lost your little introduction. I'm sorry, um, you're going to have to give it yourself. Teacher, Los Angeles, ah. who just was slacking off with the teacher because he's always listening to KPCC. <laughs> he's so excited, well, why don't you go try and do stuff like KPCC does? Okay. And so that's why I'm at SALT right now. I saw another SALT student. Okay. Celeste Wesson and uh, Ari Zeiger. You too. Okay, so I am excited about my piece because I care a lot about the environment and issues of sustainability. So this story is about a guy named Jeff who lives in Maine. And he's trying to combat um, rise, the, the, the rising cost of food prices, but he's also trying to live more green, more sort of Michael Pollan in the sort of organic locavore sense. Um, and so what he did is he got a dozen uh, backyard chicks for eggs as a way of combating rising food prices, energy costs, et cetera, et cetera. The tension um, is, as you m might anticipate, is the city said, not so fast. It said, your, your area is not zoned for this. Didn't realize this till after the fact, so he had to go board the chickens, uh, sort of foster parent them with, with a friend where it was zoned. And his sort of 11-year-old daughter, Kirsten, was devastated. They'd already named the chickens Momo, Peck, Basil, and um, chipmunk, which is sort of weird. <laughs> um, but why I think this is sort of suitable for marketplaces, because this is a trend that we see. Um, we're sort of kept as these consumers on this industrial agricultural food chain, and we need to start being producers, because I don't need to tell you why that is. I mean, we've all read these sort of New York Times articles, or read Michael Pollan, or just looked at the price of gas. Um, okay, why I find this compelling? Because, um, why do I find this compelling? I mean, <laughs> because this is someone who this is someone who didn't when he when he was told that city hall said not so fast, he didn't say, well that sucks. He said, okay, well I'm going to take this and fight this and get this rezoned, and that's what he's doing. We're in the middle of this right now. Um, he got an amendment put forward on the town council to rezone his town outside Portland, Maine, to be. Um, zone for, you know, sort of poultry husbandry, to get real jargony. Mm -hmm. um, and he's involving his 11-year-old daughter, Kirsten, in the process. They went to City Hall. They, uh, she talked, he talked. They'd say why well, it was important to them. And I guess to sort of to, to wrap it up and then just to, to, to listen, um, the sort of fundamental idea is if you want to know where your, 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 your food comes from, you have to know where your laws come from. And those are sort of inextricably tied together in a way that we don't know about because we're just on the consuming end of it. And, we, and many people think, especially our youth, think that food comes from the grocery store. And they don't realize that that's actually not where it comes from. <laughs> so. Okay, so, um, you know, Ari, I thought it was interesting because in your written pitch, you didn't mention um, the uh, rising food prices or energy costs. So I was really searching for where the, the marketplace angle started in this story. It's, it's pitched a little bit more as the personal saga. Um, but I'm, I'm still searching a little bit for the, the, the marketplace heart to this story. I think that um, when we're at our pitch meeting and we're reading a pitch, the, uh, and I think our pitch guidelines sort of say this, you know, first thing is, well, What's this story about? Uh, and the other is, where's the marketplace? And if we don't see the marketplace 
in the pitch really pretty close to the top. If it's not inherent in the pitch, then we're not sure. And I'd love for you to tell me again in a sentence, because you've got um, organic locavore, you've got food prices, energy costs, you've got tension over zoning, consumers need to get off the industrial food chain. Um, uh, Kids don't know where their food comes from. We're going to have to pick because mm -hmm. this is going to be about a two and a half to three minute story. Where would you where would you say the real marketplace angle in this pitch? Where where do you want it to be for the for marketplace? Again, I think that trying to make explicit um, that the cost of uh, food and the cost of energy are completely related and in a way that maybe it wasn't that wasn't always so explicit in the past especially now that you know ethanol is sort of actually I don't want to go there but that was a, sort of an aside but just the idea of making explicit to people let's say who haven't um, made this connection haven't foregrounded this connection that the price of energy and the price of our food are the same thing so that that one of the reasons uh, well, let me sort of make a little yeah. leap here um, that we might be, our food might be cheaper if we sourced it locally because the transportation costs wouldn't be built, would be less. Yeah, and, and just the so transportation that, costs that are built into food. Okay. Yeah, and mm -hmm. so, so then I would say, well, how does this, you know, how, how do you? How do you build the story to show us that? And does this story, it, can this story really successfully do that? Where, where, where would you, is, it, does um, this guy, what's his name? Jeff. Jeff. Does Jeff, um, does he have any idea how much cheaper or more expensive his eggs are now that he's got his chickens? Okay. Um, um, we have, yeah, we haven't brought him home yet because, you right. know, but that's, He's got to drive to get them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's sort of in a pickle. Mm -hmm. But just kind of <laughs> doing a sort of hardcore cost-benefit uh, analysis of what it would mean to be sort of local. I, I don't know. Does that work with this story? I don't think, I don't think he, we've got enough evidence for this right now to be that. So is there a way you could twist that and convince me, you know, sort of thinking about what Peter just said. Mm -hmm. Peter gave you a clue. You know, is there a way you could say, well, yes, that's what he's trying to do, but, I mean, is it difficult? Is it harder than he thought to save money mm, by mm. locally sourcing his eggs? Okay, but so, so when I get to, when... One minute. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm just, that, it's, a, it's a thought. Right, that's, that's a good, that's a good thing, is, is sort of looking at the unanticipated hazards of trying to be a locavore. Um, I mean that, that <laughs> he's like giving me clues he's like um, you know because I think you have a character who sounds like he's really wonderful and you've got lots of ideas for, of, of how to use him to make the story to tell the story in an engaging way but the things that he does he, he um, Ari didn't tell us he is using his chicken story uh, for his What is Progress course that he teaches at the local high school. Yeah. You know, so there are lots of great details about Jeff. They're not really that economic. You know, so you're going to have to help Jeff fit into our story or, and repitch it for us. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you're going to figure out this is really a story for a different program. Mm -hmm. um, 
we've, we've actually done, and that this is really, really one of the toughest things about pitching for Marketplace, I think, is that because our subject matter is very focused, um, we've often done a story about. We've done a story about whether or not local sourcing really is less, uh, really does save money, and even in some cases, there are arguments that are made that, that it can be more energy, mm -hmm. uh, it can use more energy. So, um, how do you, um, well, I think you, you know, you yeah. would be wanting to look for the twist that would take it somewhere new, somewhere different, open us up to another angle about it. And it might be just how hard it is um, to, to be, that it's harder than you think to be a great local boy. Great. great. No, okay. I like the idea that Thank does you, local sourcing really <laughs> save money? I like, yeah. I like sort of yeah. reconceptualizing my story around the question. Great. Time's up. Thank you, Ari. Thanks so Thank much. You so much. Right. Um, Peter Clowney is going to be pitched oh. first by Richard Ziegler. Now, Richard okay. Ziegler's from Durham, North Carolina. He went to the Duke Center for Documentary Studies. He's taking graduate history classes now at NCSU. He already has a BA in psych from Chapel Hill, a lot of good radio an MBA in finance, and a dog named Scooter. <laughs> He's done several stories for uh, station WXDU. Yes. Yes, thank you. Uh, well, it's December 12th, a cold, frigid night. It's just past dark, and there are about 20 young men and boys dressed as Aztec warriors, uh, kind of marching, walking, dancing down Birch Avenue, which is a little alley in the poorer section of Durham, like the Milltown section of Durham. Mm -hmm. And they're followed by about 1,500 to 2,000 Hispanic immigrants. And it's all about celebrating the feast day of our Virgin of Guadalupe. So there's a lot of gritos and there's a lot of singing and there's uh, a lot of playing drums and shuffling of feet. And um, the, what make, there were two stories that would interest me in this. Uh, and I'm pitching a postcard. By the way, so what does a postcard mean? Oh, it, it's um, just something that puts you in that place in the moment. Isn't that what all stories should do? I don't. Um, yeah, I, I guess. <laughs> no, tell I me. Guess, but, but I want I want to evoke a place. Okay. And uh, so I'm trying to evoke Durham and uh, the uh, the procession itself. Mm -hmm. And these processions probably I mean they happen in L.A. They happen in a lot of places. Right. But what's interesting to me about it being in Durham is Durham is, was and still is primarily pretty much split between being white and African-American. So you have this, um, this huge procession of recent immigrants going through actually a primarily African-American part of the community. And I've been in the procession before and I can tell, you know, there's a little you know, you look at the people who are African-American standing on the street, there's a kind of an apprehensiveness. So, really? so one story would be the, the, how this procession is meaningful to the people who are perceiving it from the outside. But I've, I've already interviewed the uh, primary organizer, who's a young man who's single, and he has, the meaning it is, has for him is about the uh, ability to still maintain and transmit their culture to their younger generation in this country. So that's mm -hmm. the other part of it that's interesting to me. All right, so what I'm hearing is that you're interested in the spectacle of this march, right? which you think is um, something that, although it happens in other communities around the country, right. and obviously in other countries, right. um, is something that you'd find a way to make be intriguing to listeners nationally. 
Right. Okay. Um, and you're interested in the in the tensions between the different people of different backgrounds in this neighborhood, or the sort of movement towards. You're interested in that somehow. Right. Right. Okay. Um, when is December twelfth? What day of the week? It's in the middle of the week okay. this year. So you would you you're hoping to do a story about getting ready for the march or? Well, the march I I taped a lot of the procession last year, right. so I already have tape on a procession right. and interviews with the priest and the uh, the organizer. Okay. Um, because I realized you you would run this like at, well. A show like yours would probably run this the weekend before it happens, mm -hmm. because you yeah. don't want to do it after. I mean, what, what appeals, I mean, because, well, first of all, um, I love how, how into this you are, okay. and that you've participated in it also raises, um, not questions, I just, I want to know more about why and how that happened for you, right. and, and right. I want to ask you about that, but um, just so you know, our show is about what's going on this weekend as much as possible, so, I mean, if the thing was happening on a Saturday or Sunday, that would add to its appeal for me. Um, However, there are these 20 boys, you said younger people? Yeah, in, mostly in costumes. boys. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, and so perhaps they made those themselves? Oh yeah, their parents make them, right. The, it, okay, so um, there, there likely is going to be some real activity happening that weekend, getting ready for the march, and so that would be oh, right. more of the peg okay. for me, rather than this week coming up is this. Okay. You know, it's, okay. You know today, right. you know, so-and-so is working on his costume with his mom and dad, right, and it right. really matters a lot to him because and he just moved to this neighborhood, but it's been a little weird because it's full of white and black people, but not a lot right. of Hispanic people. Right, right. But actually, all 2,000 from the neighborhood come right. for this march, right. and why right. do they do that? Right. So um, for me, when you say postcard, I get your investment in wanting to show what's happening, right. but I really want to know why they're out okay. there. So why are they out there? Well, I, like I said, if you talk to the organizer, a lot of them, well, there are a lot of reasons they're out there. A lot of people apparently pray to the Virgin, and when they're blessed, they make a promise to be in this, this procession. So it's a religious year. act in oh, a way. Oh, it's totally, it's a religious act, in their, in their, but it's also a statement of their place in the community, is how okay. I look at it, kind of as an outsider. And it's about making sure their um, culture from Mexico, you know, the Virgin is both the patron saint of Mexico, and she's like the national symbol of yeah. Mexico. So it's, it's not like it can't be political either. Yeah, yeah. Whether the people are participating in it or not, really. Well, I mean, it's obviously both right. things at once. Right. And right. what what I'd hope you could do for me is right. help me find someone who can talk about how both of those things matter to them. If the right. organizer is the one, I don't know. Right. Well, the organizer, when I interviewed him last year, he speaks a lot about uh, how it's relevant to him, especially since he's single and has no family. Yeah. His organizing that is about. Uh, kind of making sure he's a part of the community. So it's all about right. community and transmitting his culture. So. And so how many folks of non-Hispanic origin are, are marching? You said 2,000. They're about, they're between 1,500 and 2,000 people. They're almost all Hispanic. Um, but, so why are you marching? Well, I, I live in the neighborhood. Right. <laughs> yeah, but why are you marching? Well, I'm marching, I'm marching because I have, uh, well, am I, I'm not Catholic. But in my own kind of the religious tradition I grew up in was very much about being attached to the community, yeah. and I've I've kind of have some um, issues with that community. So I'm always like, well, I'm Baptist, and my boyfriend's Jewish. So 
Uh, we we so celebrate. Catholicism is for you. Well, it is. No, it is. No, really, really, it is. Barry and I celebrate Day of the Dead, the Virgin of Guadalupe, and 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 you know he still goes to synagogue on High Holy Days. And by the way, this started on Yom Kippur. I'm just saying. You know, <laughs> so I'm, that meant I'm, a lot to you out there. Oh, it, it, yeah, yeah. yeah, that kind of surprised me. But uh, and and so we both go to our churches, which are pretty radically left wing, to kind of associate with our own communities, okay. but. You know, we recognize that Durham is changing, and the Hispanic community is the new community there. So, so we don't have time for this now, but yeah. what I would spend the sort of the next 15 minutes asking right. you about is understanding more richly why they're marching, seeing right. who would tell yeah. the story of why they're marching, and whether it would be something, a combination of you sort of in combination, you know, in conversation with right. the organizer or right. one of the boys and his families, right. and their, you know, whatever I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and how do we understand the tensions of that neighborhood? What are they really like? What, what specific thing will I be able to see that in? What moment? Maybe you have tape from last year's march where that's like a flash, right. where we see, I don't know if, the, I don't know what happened. I, but. No, not not with that. I it's mean, not like, it's I, not right. like we need a confrontation, although right, that right, helps. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, right. No, no. Um, yeah, no. same. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Well, no. I mean, I, that that is not. To me, that's something more internally going on with the people who already live there. It's, right. There's no confrontation. So. Yeah. No, but yeah. what's going on internally is the reason we tell stories. Right. Right. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. So thank you. So, sure. Yeah. And I guess I'll listen to it. Okay. Yes, I do thank want you. it. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Richard. The next picture is Louisa Jonas from WYPR in Baltimore. Yay! <laughs> um, There's a sizable YPR posse here, isn't there? Uh, Louisa is a web producer. She's a web producer, and she creates a monthly podcast there called Natural MD. MD is Maryland, for those of you who don't know. It's a monthly documentary about nature. She's been a volunteer also for the Delaware Shorebird Project. And the story idea that she's pitching is derived from that experience, yes. right? Louisa. Hi. Nice to meet you. Same here. Um, okay, so my story starts um, very, very uh, small on the ground on the shore of the Delaware Bay. Um, the weekend of the full moon in May, um, the, there are horseshoe crabs that spawn uh, once a year under the light of the full moon for an hour at high tide. And what that means is they pour in from out of the bay and pile on top of one another by the thousands, as far as the eye can see. They've been doing this for like 250 million years, and they'll be doing it again this coming May. They will. Yeah. <laughs> Are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> okay. That sounds horrible. <laughs> It's not beautiful, but it's yeah. one of the strangest, yeah. coolest things in nature yeah. I've ever seen. Um, so, and they make, they, this is like a crab porn, but they, you know, they, it is. Um, in terms of sound, all you can hear is the lapping of waves, but also like as they writhe and like pull themselves the over each other, like you can connect. hear the shells are like yeah. Oh God. <laughs> so the, that's the that's the start of the story. Right. And then you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> then they get excited. <laughs> um, can I ask you just to stop for a yes. second? Tell me what the story is in a sentence, please. Sure. Um, the story is an intersection, a strange, strange convergence of horseshoe crab. No, that's a setting. What's the story? It's like who's doing what for what reason? You do you want the characters in it? Just tell me who's doing what in this story. Okay. Yeah. Um, what are the people doing? The people are flying in from all over the world to okay. try to save this natural cycle okay. before it disappears. So these crabs are being threatened by? 
Um, actually, the bird that feeds on okay. the crab eggs. Right. Um, there's a migratory shorebird that is dependent on the crab eggs to survive, to fly 10,000 miles, and they're on the verge of extinction. So why? What's, what's, what's screwing it up? Um, well, that's a big question, but okay. they think oh. that they're worried that there aren't enough horseshoe crab eggs for the red knot to survive. Okay. So it's weird. When I say convergence, it's weird because all these crabs are doing their crab thing, <laughs> and then all these thousands of birds are flying in the same time to feed on the eggs, and right. then all of these people from India and Mexico England fly in to this small town in Delaware each year right. to try to study and save the birds. And so there's this whole culture that exists and these okay. people that have these relationships So there's the crabs, there's the birds that feed on them. Yes. And you say that it's, they still come every year and they're going to keep coming. So something's, what's happening that's made it, why are people studying it? What's going wrong? I know you said you don't know what's at the heart of it, but what's happening? The eggs aren't surviving or something? Um, so the, the horseshoe crabs have been fished for use in the, beel, the um, okay. eel and um, conch industry. And in the 1990s, they were overfished, and their right. numbers went down. Okay. So why does that take a lot of study? I, I, so that's what went wrong. I mean, why is everyone coming in? What's, what's the mystery they're hoping to solve by looking at the process? Well, I say it like it's very simple. It's, I guess, like a lot of environmental stories. It's a little complicated. Yeah. Um, they Unfortunately, that's, you know, that's the thing with radios. So yeah. We have to find a way to, to get to the heart of that. Yeah, Yeah, that's, that's a good No, but question. go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean yeah. to interrupt you. No, that's okay. You're supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> I do it anyway. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't want to take forever to explain it, and I guess that's, that's the well, point. Well, that's the question that's the point, for it. Okay, right? so okay. that's the thing. And, and honestly, if, if, you can, if we can get there with this, I'll take the story. Okay. Because um, it's a beautiful setting. It's mind-boggling. I once, as a kid, and by the way, beware of your editor. If they've got a personal horror story related to your topic, they might, like, I once stepped on a whole fleet of these horseshoe crabs that were, like, upside down, and it's like, ugh, I can still feel that, like, on my feet, you know? And um, <laughs> I don't know if they're trying to mate or not, you know? It's just an awful thing. And... <laughs> and um, so I can shush. We're hitting on you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I, I do think I do think the setting is it just ratchets your attention right away, and that's yeah. a beautiful thing. And then the fact that everyone's coming and and trying to observe. And and for me, the difference between scientists are concerned because and overfishing, and we should really care about this. Like all that sort of the noble public radio story. That's just kind of. I mean, I've heard it a lot. Yeah. But so I'll start to care again if we can get down into the details, like. What they're looking for is this about the eggs. What they're watching is for the way the birds turn in the air because if they don't dip soon enough, they're not going to, whatever it okay, is. So like, for, okay, yeah. so for example, the, well, one of the things that's remarkable about these people, and I was one of them, is that. Um, oh, they, really? Oh, yeah. I've spent three summer, three Secret agenda there. driven reporting. <laughs> um, people come and spend, um, like, this happens, at, well, anyway, people come and spend a few weeks there every year and they do it out of their. Out of their free time they don't get paid to do it to okay. try to save it um, one of the things that we do is we they do what we do is they catch the birds um, and rate and weigh them over the spawning um, period to see if their weights are increasing so for example see if they're getting the eggs yeah and so like at the start of the season the birds land literally their their fe their feather and bone they're emaciated they're tiny they're tiny tiny little birds and then in two weeks time after feeding on the eggs they're round and plump and and then they, they can barely take off into the wind. They have to go with the wind or they fall. Yeah. So, um, well, because, I mean, for me, I, I really think that what, part of what we can do in the show is help describe what people are doing this weekend. Um, be, you know, because, and a lot of what people are doing really is not what you're doing, and it can kind of blow your mind. So, the process of investigating these eggs and, or the birds and weighing them, watch, watching them get fat or whatever, 
there might be enough in what they're doing and, and to, to capture my attention. But I also, I'd like a clue about like how this might matter, what the possible outcome, like if, if we rescue and make sure this process stays healthy, what difference does that make to my life? Mm. That would be nice, that'd be nice to know. Um, you said something in your pitch about how the horseshoe crab blood is important for like yeah. injections to us or something, which yeah. also creeped me out. Um, <laughs> but uh, but you see what I'm saying? Like yeah. so, this is fabulous setting. There are these people that are themselves fascinated and working on it, and then at another higher level, I'm like, okay, so what does that all mean? What does that come to? I'd like to. Yeah, um, that's. Yeah. Think about it. Yeah, I don't know how. You'll call me. We'll talk. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Great. Yeah. Um, I want to say one thing too about about the importance of newness. Um, I would like you guys to think about what the discovery for your audience will be in your story. I'd like you to focus on that a lot more than whether it's new, because in research that we did about our, about our sustainability reporting, we found out that the audience really likes hearing the same story told again. Because we all do. He's like, oh, I've heard about that. Tell me more. I've heard about that. I need to understand that a little more. You know, things overlap. That's the reason why Marketplace is on every day during this financial crisis, <laughs> twice, three times, you know. It's, new is not my focus. It's what will the audience discover? What will help the audience? What will keep their mind engaged? Don't repeat exactly something else because it, it's bound to have changed since the day that stories are dynamic. So there's more to say. I mean, I'm just saying, I've heard a lot of preservation stories. Mm-hmm. And at the heart of those stories, sometimes it's like, well, it's good to preserve things. Yeah. Why? You know, I don't, I don't really know that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some things are worth preserving. Some things are worth replacing with other things. Not necessarily animals. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, but, but earn <laughs> robots is what I'm asking for. No, um, but you know what I'm saying? Like, help, help me. Uh, think, things aren't necessarily noble or good or worthy on their own. Just let's help me, get me, make me care. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, you're so you're so sad, but we'll talk. It's okay. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you very much. Um, by any chance, did Lauren Kirby show up? Do you want to pitch? No. Uh, in that case, we're going to move to our rapporteur, who is Karen Michelle. It's a kind of a tradition. This is the third. Um, year that we've done this pitch session and Karen is going to summarize what we have what we can take away from all of this I'll have some announcements after that so stick around when she's done Karen shocking shocking I'll try and hi I'll try and I put my tush to you this time okay (laughs) very sweet of you (laughs) but enough about my tush uh, uh, thank you all and you all for showing the courage to do this publicly. Um, as, as most of, of us all know, you usually do this without clothes on, you know, in the privacy of your whatever it may be. So, of my office. So today was very different from yesterday's session, and those of you who were here yesterday, I, I think you'll notice distinct differences. So to summarize today, um, focus, 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 focus. Your obsession is not necessarily their obsession, it's not necessarily the audience's interest. Find a way to take your obsession uh, either to the therapist or to a focus point for a story (laughs) for one of these shows. Um, There are different lenses for these shows that overlap quite a bit. So we have the, the lens of poverty and justice, the lens of poverty and justice, (laughs) 
um, the lens of the arts and justice and poverty for the artist. <laughs> and um, the lens of the weekend when you're trying to ignore that there's poverty and injustice. <laughs> Uh, so know we do which a lot of poverty and justice. yeah. So know which show you're pitching to, so that you can focus the poverty and injustice in the right <laughs> direction, and so that you feel justified in your own poverty as a result of having done the story. Um, show um, what your angle is and what the real questions are, and where the heart is of the story immediately, so that they don't have to ask you where this is in your story. Instead of this is why I'm doing this, and this is why I care. Why should they care about the story right away? Um, the why beyond the what. Uh, what's going on internally? Not necessarily what you can see, but what you can intuit behind the obvious to come up with something the audience hasn't known before, but they may have cared about in some way before and have some information uh, about. So um, the gist of this is discovery. What difference does this make, not in your life so much as in the audience life, the life of the program, the life of uh, the crab, the life of the underwear, <laughs> the life of the envelope, whatever it may be. Uh, and if your um, obsession, and we are all obsessed or we wouldn't be here, can't get to that point, then it's not the editor you need, it's the therapist. Is Carrie Donahue here from The Takeaway? Carrie Donahue? Um, Carrie, there's a new program called The Takeaway, and I think that Carrie was going to be here to tell us a little bit about it, but I don't see her. Come here. <laughs> Carrie was going to tell us, Carrie was going to make an announcement about when The Takeaway is going to be taking pitches. Do oh, you want to yes. talk about that a little bit? Oh, sure. Uh, 60 seconds? Uh, 60 seconds, okay. <laughs> uh, so I represent The Takeaway, which is a new morning show out of WNYC. It's basically airing at the same time of Morning Edition, uh, so that's what we face. And uh, the main <laughs> purpose of our show is that we're live. Everything is usually live. Uh, there are very few packages in it, but that doesn't mean that we don't include sound or we don't like hearing from reporters or people who are freelancers because some of our favorite stories have actually come from people who are in our local, like, who are in our areas that, we, that pick us up, like in uh, Virginia or Missouri, et cetera. So what we're still trying to do right now is still trying to work out exactly how our network is going to set up. Um, if anybody wants to talk to me more about this, it's, a very, it, it's still a program that's still developing its own legs. But again, this is something that it's all about being live. And if you find yourself that you really are good conversationally. That's especially what we're looking for. We're looking for people who can bring us small details about their own community that just really pop, make you surprised. I mean, that's the purpose of the takeaway, that in any story, we just want that little nugget that if nobody understands what's happening with politics or the economy, there's one thing that they can tell their friends as a story afterwards. So that's a little bit more about the show. And as far as pitching to us goes, it's still very, uh, it's still a little unclear at this point, only because we are still trying to develop our own voice and still trying to, as many radio shows are, dealing with staffing. So, uh, And the fact that I'm like awake right now is totally a surprise, because I get in at 3 AM. Uh, so uh, please see me afterwards if you're interested. I can uh, hopefully 
uh, put you in touch with the right people to accept pitches. This is actually pretty short notice that me being here uh, since basically got settled last week. Uh, yeah. Have you taken any pitches? I mean, what have you actually produced from freelancers, anything? Uh, there are a few things that we have established contacts with some station reporters right now. Ben Calhoun, for example, is one of them from WBEZ. So he would sometimes pitch to us stories, and it's a matter of filtering it through our connections through the BBC, the New York Times, and uh, it's a matter of that. Packages or live? It's, it's usually live, and what reporters or freelancers can do for us is bring to us tape and their own voice and their own mm -hmm. personal stories. I mean, it, it's a lot of it is we like a reporter's notebook, and we don't want the reporter to be this uh, voice that's completely insular, that doesn't really have a part in the story, because as many of us know, we all take an important personal part in our own stories, and there are some things that we like that we want to bring to the table, and that's especially what we want to hear from people who join us on the show. We can watch for more information from folks at the takeaway. Another question? I was just wondering if everybody could talk about rates and how much they pay per minute. Um, you know what? We're, we're running over time. I'm sorry. <laughs> Does everybody want to hear? Why don't you come after? We need to wrap this up because... We, I think they, they want an answer. You, yeah. want, you, want, you guys want to talk yeah. about that? Um, hmm? If you can do it fast, can yeah, you do it fast? Yeah, our rates okay. start at 150 a minute, and they go up based on a few different variables. Uh, everybody, that, well, not everybody, I'll talk for the ones I've worked with. The shows I've worked on have sliding scales based on difficulty of story length and uh, our relationship with the reporter, how long, much we can trust, how much work it takes to get the story in. Yeah. Um, we don't actually have a per minute rate. We basically have a tiered system at the moment, which I'm, we're sort of looking at the rates at present. Uh, it runs about 550 for a story in the one to four minute range. Um, over five minutes to about eight minute runs, 900 mixed. Again, there are some variables that apply to that, but that is the basic contract rate. Yeah, what was the ba Did you have an actual number? Yeah, I said, did I not? <laughs> I, I just, I was, oh, I was uh, checking with Ben. 550 for a shorter, for right. a shorter rate, for a shorter story. Yeah, uh, you know, we also have a tiered system, thanks to Peter Clowney when he was an editor at Marketplace. <laughs> and. Um, <laughs> And I actually don't do payments anymore, but Betsy Streisand, who's one of our editors. Yeah, John, John Haas. John Haas. Okay, yes. For the short pieces. Yeah, and most of the pieces are short. Um, and there's, oh, and there's not a, the, the two minute piece for Marketplace Morning Report and the up to three and a half minute piece for Marketplace PM, same rate. So it depends on the tier, how hard the piece is, your experience, et cetera. But, um, you don't get penalized. We created the tiered system partly so you weren't penalized for doing a short, concise, snappy story. And that, you know, they're just as hard and you're not harder. rewarded if you are assigned at three and you come in at four, you don't get paid extra for making We pay it you less, actually. <laughs> so it's, again, it's, it's in the same range. 450 for a story under four minutes, 650 for four to six minutes, 750 for over six minutes. One other person I'd like you to meet is here. Um, I'm going to point him out so that you can go and see him when we're done here. His name is Paul Ingalls. He's an independent producer. He's sitting right here in the back. Many of you know Paul's wonderful independent work. He's also has, has another title as liaison for independent producers at National Public Radio. So it's his job eight hours a week to work with independents to create pitches for programs at National Public Radio. So he's very helpful. He's also an AIR member and participates a lot in the AIR daily list if you're interested in that. 
So Paul is a guy you want to see if you have questions about pitching to NPR. Um, if you want to come and talk to any of these people, come and do that now. Um, Lita Hartman, I know, also has a lot of information here about World Vision Report. Thank you all, all of you who contributed pitches. It was a fabulous exercise. I think we're all very grateful to you. Thanks, and we'll see you next year.